I'm going to begin with a, with a good, tried-and-true American quote. My 4th of July message starts with a quote by John Adams. You guys like John Adams? John Adams, in January of 1775, he was writing to uh, the colony of Boston, the, um, what was it, the Massachusetts Bay Colony is what he was writing to. And he says this in one of his articles. <clears throat> he says, there is a latent spark in the breasts of the people capable of being kindled into a flame. I read that this week. There is a latent spark in the breast of the people that is capable to being fanned into a flame. And I was thinking this week, as we came back from being with them, we hit the ground running, Shannon and I did, and I started thinking about today, and I was just thinking that there's a flame in this church. There's a flame. It's not just a spark, brothers and sisters. There is a flame that God has placed within his church that is capable of spreading beyond just a flame, but into a wildfire. And I know that you, along with I, have faith for what God wants to do through his church in this season. And something I said to uh, Mercy Commons last week, I said, what if God does not want us to return back to normal. Everybody is clamoring, especially right now. It's like we, everybody's missed on last summer, so they're wanting to travel and do all the vacations that they couldn't catch up with and all the comings and goings that are happening. And, and the, the phrase that you heard is like getting back to normal, right? And everybody's wanting get it, to get back to normal post-COVID. But I just said to them, what if God doesn't want us to return to normal? the ins and outs of every day, the filling our calendars up with all sorts of things, perhaps a bit of a casual spirit that we approached our faith with. Church, I think that God is saying, he's doing something new. God doesn't want to go back to what was. He's in the business of growth and advancement. And I'm not just talking about church growth, I'm talking about heart growth, faith growth. This is what God is about, expanding the kingdom of God, heart by heart, mind by mind. And I believe that what God is saying to his church right now at large is that he wants to begin a season that's new. So what I would say to you guys, as, we, as I introduce today, just where we're going to be studying and, uh, for the next number of weeks, inspect your own heart, much like the word of faith that was brought this morning, the admonition from the Lord, of the things that we cling to. Inspect our own hearts. Man, and what is God saying Let's, let's weed this out. Let's get rid of this. Quit clinging to this, but instead hold on to this. And let's begin to see what God will do in expanding our faith and our expectation so that when we come together, that there is just such a sense of purpose. And I'm not saying we're purposeless now, but you know what I'm saying, even greater purpose when the church gathers. Amen? Can you guys believe that with me? Does that resonate with you guys? Yeah, let's, let's hold on that together, church. And so just an encouragement. It's not to say... You can't take your vacations. You know, we're going to take a family vacation this year, but be present. Be here on Sundays. Be present to pray week in and week out, month in and month out. Be engaged for the hub groups that we have going. Be a part of a hub group. Give yourself to what God is doing. I'm not just saying give yourself to the church. Give yourself to what God is doing. Because I tell you, brothers and sisters, God is not interested in you flying solo. He's not interested in you being the Lone Ranger. He's interested in you finding your place within his church. And he's brought you here. Find your place within this church. Let's go far together, all right? All right, thanks. I appreciate that. All right, where do we begin? 
Kevin said last week, I was listening to the teaching when I came home on Thursday. He said the kingdom of heaven, he quoted from, uh, from Jesus' words in Matthew 11, that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And I was thinking this as well after I heard that, that what if the kingdom forcefulness and what if, what if this gospel-inspired tenacity is the flame itself that God wants to stoke into the hearts of his people? I think that's what it is. This, this forcefulness in the kingdom of God that what God wants to fan into flame in his church. I read this really great quote this week, and I'm just going to start right off the bat by sharing this quote with you. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm ready to preach, I promise you. Uh, that's not it. Do I have it up here? I don't have it. I'm sorry, guys. Let me just read it. Listen to this. This was Charles Spurgeon speaking on Jesus' words of Matthew 11. He says that this violence does not end when a man finds Christ. It begins to exercise itself in another way. Oh, good, we do have it. Thank you. The man who is pardoned and who knows it then becomes violently in love with Christ. He does not love him just a little. He loves him with all his soul and all his might. He feels as if he could wish to die for Christ and his heart pants to be able to live alone with his Redeemer and serve him without interruption. Mark such a man who is a true Christian. Mark his prayers and you will see there is violence in all his supplications when he pleads for the souls of men. Mark his outward actions and they are violently sincere, violently earnest. Mark him when he preaches. There's no dull droning of a monotonous discourse. He speaks like a man who means what he says and who must speak it. Or else who would be or else would be unto him, excuse me, or else woe would be unto him if he preached not the gospel. And then he goes on to say, I've seen the minister preaching without a particle of life. A sermon which is only fresh in the sense in which a fish is fresh when it has been packed in ice. I've seen the people sit and they've listened as if they had a group, have been a group of statues. The chiseled marble would have been such as much affected by the sermon as they. I've seen the deacons go about their business just as orderly and with as much precision as if they had been mere automatons, not men with hearts and souls at all. Do you think God will ever bless a church like that? Are we ever to take the kingdom of heaven with a troop of dead men? Never. We want living ministers, living hearers, living deacons, living elders, and until we have such men and women who have got the very fire of the life burnings in their souls, who have got tongues of life and eyes of life and souls of life, we shall never see the kingdom of heaven taken by storm. What a brilliant, brilliant discourse on, on Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Amen? This church is what I believe God wants to do in us, in his church today. This is the type of Christians that we're called to be. When a ship's hull is submerged in the water for an extended period of time, it attracts crustaceans that are barnacles, right? Are you guys familiar with this? Which over time, they build up and they build up and they build up. And I read recently that some, some corporations have budgets upwards of a billion dollars just to remove the crustaceans from the ships because of the damage they do. And do you know why it's damaging to the ships? It wastes fuel and it wastes energy and it causes the ship to slow. And I was thinking about that. I, just, I read it on the airplane on something I was like reading coming home in Orange County. 
And uh, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, man, that's what God wants to do. God wants to remove the barnacles on the hearts of men and women that are slowing his church, that are wasting energy and wasting fuel, and he wants us to be free to sail the seas of the kingdom. This is what God is about. This is what he is about. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that is casual or weak or diluted about the message of the kingdom. There is nothing that is casual or weak about the effects of the kingdom of God on our life. The kingdom of God has grabbed each and every one of us with such potency and with, with such restraint, if you will, that, that it, is, it is undeniable of the work of Christ in our life, right? I was actually thinking about having Kevin share his story this morning of coming to faith, but sorry, bro, I didn't tell you. I'm not going to have you do that because we don't have time. But man, it doesn't have to be necessarily where every story is radical for you to have experienced just the radical love of Christ and the transformation of Christ for your life. But it is stirring in our faith when we hear stories of God literally gripping people out of the kingdom of darkness, which is Kevin's story, and opening his eyes to the spiritual realm and dropping him into the kingdom of Christ. There's nothing that is, that is tempered about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is fierce and forceful. Amen? Therefore, his church should be fierce and forceful. We've entitled a new series. I've given it a title of Sheer Christianity, I'm calling it. I like to play on words to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, if you're familiar with it. But more importantly, sheer, which is not used so much commonly these days in the sense that I'm referring to it, which I'll speak here in just a second about it. Oftentimes, I think we see it as like a veil that is transparent. That is not the kind of Christianity we are talking about. In fact, I want to use it to refer to a Christianity that is absolutely the opposite of that. When something is sheer, it's pure, it is undiluted, and it is completely separate from anything that is foreign. Think about that for a moment. It is pure, it's undiluted, and it is separate from anything that is foreign. I think that the church struggles with this. I think we struggle with this. Not in the sense of Jesus' part, not in sense of a lack of fruitfulness of Christ in our life, but in the sense of its expression through us, that we struggle with, with a pure faith at times, with a faith that is undiluted from the world. I wanted to speak this morning, just lay some foundations for this upcoming series. We're going to use this series, and we're going to just dig into areas within the church, marriage, parenting, community, generosity. We're just going to go week by week and topically teach on the purity of these aspects of Christian life as an encouragement to each one of us to find a sure footing in a continuation of what we remember Peter admonished those early churches in, to continue to stand firm in the grace of God, but in these very practical areas of our life. And so this morning what I want to do is I was thinking about how do I want to open this up? I want to just begin by laying for us a reminder. I'm not going to say anything this morning that you've not heard before in the sense of that I want to just speak the gospel to us today. 
But I want to lay a foundation as a reminder that what has gripped us, church, as I said a minute ago, what has gripped us is nothing that has been casual. What has gripped us is nothing that has been half-hearted in Christ. What has gripped us is God's ferocious love, his boundless mercy, and his grace which cut through each and every one of our hearts. Whether you were raised as a believer in the church or whether you were radically ripped out of darkness and into light, what the kingdom of God has done within us, brothers and sisters, by his grace, is absolutely radical. It's radical. Think of your own stories for a moment. So I want to use Paul's words to the Ephesians today just to lay this groundwork, lay this foundation, reminding us of the radical origins and the unadulterated power by which our faith originates from and by which it was caused by. And I I just want to lift our eyes today to Christ and stimulate our faith to see again, or maybe perhaps even for the first time, how God's radical saving of humanity from sin was brought about by Jesus Christ. So turn in Ephesians, please, to chapter 2. And I, re- I want to read Paul's words. I'm going to actually read a portion of chapter 1, and I want to read a portion of chapter 2. I'm going to begin chapter 1 and verse 3. Ephesians, the word of the Lord, which we receive with a glad heart this morning. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, let these words wash over you this morning, over your hearts and minds. Who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Father, so much has been sung, so much has been said already this morning. And Lord, we need for you by your spirit to cut through the thoughts of our mind, to wade through the intentions of our hearts, Lord. Father, right now, I ask by your spirit that you would begin to stimulate faith within your church, within our hearts, Lord. This, this spark of which I spoke, Lord, would you fan it to a greater flame? May that flame become a fire, Lord, and may that fire become all-consuming of your people and of your church. Lord, we understand the necessity for otherworldly living, for radical faith, for bold and intentional witness of the gospel. But yet, Lord, we at times we worry, we're fearful, we lack faith. But God, we thank you that where we lack, you supply. And so today, Lord, we ask that you would fill us to overflowing. You would remind us of our commission, Lord God, and that you would conform our hearts and minds to the glory of your name. We say this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our guarantee, our mediator, and our hope. Amen. I just have so many things that are like stirring in my heart this morning, and so I apologize. I'm, I don't know why I'm apologizing. I don't apologize. I, uh, I'm just recognizing it that I'm, I just feel really stirred, church, and uh, I want to see you guys stirred as well by the Lord this morning. It's sometimes we can read, especially this passage, passage of Ephesians. I thought about it before I decided to read it in its totality, but sometimes we can read it, and first off, it's full of commas, right? So you think you've come to the end of a sentence and you realize, no, Paul's continuing his thought. So I do apologize for that because I might have made a definitive pause only to realize that, no, we need to keep going with this statement. But one of the, one of the things that we have to be careful of when we read this, A, is becoming too familiar with the passage of Scripture, which this portion of Scripture is very familiar. And secondly, that we move through it too quickly, thus missing all the, just the really beautiful nuggets of truth that Paul lays out one after another, after another, after another. And so I wanted to read this, though, just because I felt what it does is it speaks, again, this statement of, I'm entitling this morning's preach Radical Origins. And so it speaks to the radical origins of the faith of you and of I. I was thinking about this, that to know the depths or the riches that Paul speaks of here in chapter 1. He kind of almost flip-flops it. He speaks of everything that is true that we have inherited in Christ Jesus. If you've put your faith in him, everything in chapter 1 is yours. And I was thinking, in order to understand really truly the depth of what he said in chapter 1, we need in our hearts, church, to grasp the depths of chapter 2. How deep we were in our death. How deep we were in sin. How deep, how far we were separated from Christ 
and what a chasm Christ crossed on our behalf. And, and almost, it's almost like in order to understand, we must proportionately understand how far we've come in order to understand how much we have gained. There's such a, a potent and a dynamic language that Paul uses here in Ephesians in his opening chapters to communicate the depths of our wickedness, the certainty of its outcome for us, and the complete and utter inability of us to do anything about it. He says that you were dead in your trespasses. I was thinking, man, is this not one of humanity's greatest fears, death itself? Paul was saying, you were already dead. Don't fear what was to come. Fear your present state that was the certainty sealing what would come. And he's like, no, you were dead. You were dead. What an indictment Paul makes on the heart of humanity. Before faith in Christ, our souls were dead. We were dead. Our daily actions and our lives and everything, therefore, that we did had no value to it. Value in the sense of eternal worth, righteousness, and holiness. We were dead, he says. But he wasn't also only speaking to the condition of our souls in that very moment, but he was also speaking to the certainty of what awaited us. You were as good as dead. You might as well have been dead, Paul is saying. The eternal death of our bodies, of our souls, as a result of what sin brings into life. Nobody knows in this life what awaits on the other side for those that are outside of Christ. Jesus, of course, spoke of it when he was present on earth. And we know that the words that he used describe a certainty that no one would want to endure or to bear. I listened this week to John MacArthur was taking a Q&A. And there was a woman who stood, and this woman was distraught. And she said, I just lost a cousin and I'm pretty certain that he was not of faith. And she was wrestling with this, and she was looking for comfort in that moment. And she's going, there is nothing in his life that would have said that there was any fruit. We know that God, and she recognized that we know that God can do these things, but even up until the last moment, there seemed to be no evidence. What do I do? How do I wrestle with this? Where, what comfort do I have? And John MacArthur said, he said, good. You should feel that way because we have become too comfortable with seeing people outside of Christ die outside of Christ. The hearts of believers have become hardened almost to the countless individuals that die outside of Christ Jesus. God forbid that we become so hardened in our own hearts. Church, I repent. I'm, I'm that way all the time. I live blindly through my life so often, coming with, in, with countless people here and there and here and there who are outside of Christ without a word having ever been shared. I repent before you guys how easy it is for us to become calloused in our hearts, not jaded towards them, but just like we get so focused on our own faith, don't we? on our own journey, our own story, our own 
needs and, and wants, and we lose sight of what God has called us to and who he's placed us in front of. There's, there's a certainty, Paul says. There's a certain death outside of Christ Jesus that awaits. The simple truth is that even the language that we use to describe what Jesus did, that we have been saved, indicates the existence of certain doom and judgment that awaited us. We say it all the time. We've been saved. What were we saved from? Remember, you guys, reflect on your own lives. And may I just caution and warn those of us who have grown in the church, who have been raised by parents of faith, it's very easy to miss the depths of our depravity, which is why it's important for us at times to sing songs that remind us how far we were from Christ. We have to be cautious of our own hearts. If you're a parent and you're raising a child in the faith, it's okay to teach them about sin. You must teach them about sin, about the, the causes of sin, about the consequences of sin, about the effects of sin even presently on their life. But we do so holding it against the backdrop of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ and how far he has brought us. We have been saved. In order to be saved into something, we, there must be something that we are saved out of. And as we studied 1 Peter, we saw in chapter 1, he says, you were ransomed. Listen to the language. Again, there's such forcefulness behind it. There is no casual approach to what God has done on our behalf. You were ransomed, Peter says, from the futile thinking of your forefathers, from the futile ways of your forefathers. You were ransomed. Paul will say in Romans, or sorry, in Colossians, that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Ransomed and delivered, both of them speak of what Paul is speaking here in Ephesians 2, that we were bound, right? Deliverance speaks of the fact that we were bound. We were enslaved. I almost thought about just going back and reading some of, of, what, of what Moses, or what God speaks to Moses, to the people of Israel, as he's promising to release them from captivity. And I was struck by the song that Moses sang after crossing the Red Sea. Church, those are the songs that we sing here on Sunday. They're songs of a ransomed people. They're praises of a people who are free that were once enslaved to sin. So when we sing them, we don't just sing them because it's like makes us feel good. We sing them with all that we are, with all that our heart can project. And as loud as our voices can project, regardless if we, if we can hold a tune or not, we sing it with everything that we are because we are like Moses who saw the deliverance of God for his people, who can look back and look at our Red Sea that we were brought through. And we can sing these songs of praise because we were a people who were ransomed. We were a people who were delivered. We were in bondage. We were enslaved. But Jesus has set us free. Happy Fourth of July. <laughs> we have been set free. And as Georgia said so well, to walk in true freedom, to real freedom, real Christian liberty. What a beautiful thing it is that he has done. We were slaves to the works, Paul says, 
of Satan. We were bound to Satan as our master before Christ ransomed us. We followed Satan. We served Satan. And some of you are going, well, I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did. Your sin is a testament to who you serve, which is why it is so important to understand how the cross has dealt with sin and why as Christians, the ongoing cycles of sin that we give ourselves to are not only, not only has it been dealt with by Christ, but we are not to live in those. And it's almost like when we sin, we are identifying ourselves with what was true about us, with our former self, right? We served Satan. It's good to say who it is sometimes. We have all these different words that we use for Satan, spirit of the age, the enemy, etc. Those are true. But listen, not that we're going to give him more credit than he deserves, but let's also identify who it is that is at work in this world today. It's Satan. We followed Satan. We were slaves to Satan, and our works attested to that. We were disobedient, Paul says, and carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds. Sometimes we think of sin as just the acts of our bodies, but it is an act of all of who we are. It's our minds and our bodies that were in opposition to Christ Jesus. And as such, Paul says that we were rightly objects of God's wrath. That's what he says in chapter 2. We were object of God's wrath. The righteous and just judgment of God was fixed upon us. And then as we have said so many times over so many years, but God, right church? But God, but God being rich in mercy. We should write a song about but God. But God, being rich in mercy, the great and providential interrupter of humanity, when we were still enemies of him, radically and utterly wholly rescued us from bondage. The fullness of God, church. The fullness of God, enfleshed in a man. Lived sinless, lived obedient, lived perfect, and willingly and joyfully Willingly and joyfully, two important characteristics of his obedience, laid his life as a payment in place of our own that we might be free. That does not sound casual to me. That does not sound half-hearted. That does not sound as though he was not quite certain that he wanted to do it. That speaks of a radical Radical freedom. And we're free now not to live for ourselves because we didn't ransom ourselves, right? We're now we're free to live for Christ. And that text that I'm sure I've quoted a hundred times since in the last four years, we were bought with a price. We were ransomed. We were bought with a price. And then he says, so glorify God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And this is the point that I want to make here. With as much force as we were running towards hell, and may I say with an even greater force now, we must, as his children, present ourselves to Christ. Run with that same forcefulness and live for Jesus. Let's not half, 
our Christianity. If my kid wasn't here, I might have said it. If it wasn't recording on the live stream, I might have said it. But seriously, though, let's not give ourselves half-heartedly to Christ. He didn't give himself in part for us. He willingly and joyfully, obediently went to the cross. How many of us today are willingly and joyfully giving ourselves to him? Are we? I know that you are. I mean, first of all, you're here. That's not just a, a, a joy. It is a joy, but it's also an obedience to Christ. Because the church is God's chosen vehicle for the kingdom. God receives the most glory when, like Jesus, we, his children, obediently and willingly lay down our lives for him, when we bow to his lordship, when we honor his commands, and when we live for his reflection, he receives the most glory. Not in part, but total. When we do these things with the whole intent of our hearts. And Paul will go on to describe repeatedly the present and, and anything but half-hearted effect that this deliverance and ransoming and saving had on us. That's chapter one that we read. That's the effect. That's the totality of what God did. And he says this in, in, verse, in verse five, or sorry, in chapter two, verse five, he made us alive. Alive now and alive forever. Alive now, church. We are alive now to Christ Jesus. We are not just looking for our, our eternal life that is promised. We're alive now. How are you living now? How am I living now? Am I living alive? Or am I living maybe a little bit of the old mat and a little bit of the new mat? I want to live with all of it. I want to live as all that he has caused me to be and has told me that I am and has shown me what has been afforded to me by faith because of grace. I want to live in this, I want to live in all of this chapter one in the last half of chapter two. He made us alive with him. He says he raised us up with him. He raised us up with him as a sign of our promised inheritance. This union that we have with Christ through faith. We find ourselves in Christ, hidden in his work and given the blessing of his finished work. And it seated us with him. And just, I, was, I read that this week and I thought of Hebrews when we studied that last summer. That just as Hebrews tells us that Christ sat down at the right hand of God, never to be moved from that place was the picture that the writer was trying to give to us. That Jesus is seated. And we said, well, is he literally seated right now? No, no, there's a picture that is trying to be represented in this. That Christ is in a place never to be moved. And so Paul is saying the same thing, that we have been seated with him, never to be moved. And he made us recipients of his immeasurable riches by grace. And church, and these are some of the things that we are going to talk about over these next few weeks and couple of months, that beyond this deliverance and this freedom, that we were also mercifully adopted that we were 
placed strategically by Christ, that we have been healed fully, even though we don't walk in the fullness of that, we have been healed. We've been thoroughly filled by his spirit, commissioned so clearly by Christ that we've been sent out, that we have been empowered and more and more and even more than that. Those are all things that are, are a result of our faith in Christ. So there's nothing that is nonchalant about God's working out of salvation. None of it was haphazard in its effect upon us. So then why do we at times live as though it were? Why do we act like certain things don't matter when really they make all the difference in the eternal perspective? Does that make sense? We say things like, ah, I don't, uh, you know, I don't have any money this month. I don't have to tithe, right? I don't really need to tithe. There's grace, right? I'll ask for forgiveness. There's grace or whatever it is. It's like, no, no. Why do we live like some things don't matter? And this is a, that was a bad analogy because this is a very generous and faithful church in their giving. But I'm just saying, we, 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 I, I sat with someone last, yesterday, we went to this party and it was full of people I didn't know, and that is like not my thing. Believe it or not, I cannot stand being in big groups of people that I don't know. I like being one-on-one. So I sat down at this table, and I knew, I knew this man, one man casually, and his wife sat down and started talking to me, and she right away wanted to talk about the church. And I sat there, and we talked for a little while, and I was thinking, man, I wish I could really just say everything that I want to say right now. But yet, you know, I didn't want to blow her out of the water. But here's my point. We don't need any more cultural Christians. We don't need any more. And I said, this is what I did say to her. I said, you know what the problem is? And she, she was a professed Christian. We don't, we, I said, you know what the problem is in the church? Is that the church is trying to view the circumstances of this world through a natural lens and then somehow reconcile their faith alongside of it. I said, but you know what Scripture tells us? A scripture gives us a worldview that we must look and see every single circumstance through. And then when the rub comes against those things, our default is to scripture and to the truth that is revealed within it. And I don't, she, she's going, uh, yeah. I don't think it was fully, I don't know that it fully sank in. But my point is just to say, it's to say this. that there are things, there's a way that we need to live our life, brothers and sisters, that doesn't just once in a while speak of Christ, but it must proclaim all of Christ for all of life. That's my point. I'm going to end there. Um, that was from my heart, guys. I, I said a lot. I hope I said enough, though. I trust the Lord that I did. Um, I really wanted to just lay a foundation, as I said, just as a reminder, man, this is what God has done. It's radical. It is total. And so therefore, let's live radically and fully for Christ in every aspect of our life, not just in some of it, all right? Stand.